Welcome back. This is not Gary Nolan today. I hope that doesn't disappoint you too much. This is Dave Rowland. I'm the Director of Litigation for the Freedom Center of Missouri. And uh, I am filling in for Gary, as I sometimes get to do when he is unavailable to host the show. Uh, we have been celebrating Thanksgiving today. Uh, I spoke to Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft earlier, and, and uh, you know we talked about Thanksgiving and the things uh, that are joyful about it. And then we talked to uh, Martha Holler, um, and she also was emphasizing the importance of gratitude. And so I wanted to talk about uh, something that I am grateful for, and this is also something that we discussed with, with Martha, and that is the continuously advancing state of technology. I think that one of the remarkable aspects of capitalism is that uh, it incentivizes and rewards innovation, uh, especially innovation that makes people's lives better. Now, the way that that has manifested for me in just the last week or so is uh, you may have heard about a company called SpaceX. Um, SpaceX is owned by Elon Musk, and the goal was to um, revolutionize the way that the space industry operates. Uh, prior to SpaceX, the way it worked was NASA or one of its contractors would build a rocket. The rocket got used one time and then it was disposed of. And Elon Musk pointed out how insane that is. He said, can you imagine how expensive air travel would be if we built an airliner, used it once, and then threw it away? It would be insanely expensive. And that's why the space industry has been so expensive. And, you know, you see this. You see a NASA budget, and they've got some project, and they start out projecting that it's going to cost $2 billion. And then a few years later, oh, wait, no, it's going to cost $4.5 billion. And then a few years later, it costs another $6 billion. And it just kind of steam, uh, uh, snowballs. That's and why they started the uh, Challenger. Because it's a reusable spacecraft. Well, yeah, that was that was part of the idea of the space shuttle. But then, even then, uh, you were disposing of important parts of the space shuttle, and uh, it ended up not being nearly as economical as they expected it to be. And so, here comes SpaceX, and it's a private company, which is crucial Um, because when you've got a government entity or a government program, it incentivizes. Congress people to make it as complex as they can so that every congressional district gets a little bit of pork to distribute to their constituents. Um, and if they happen to stretch out uh, these projects, well, that just means that their constituents are getting paid for larger and larger amounts of time. Um, efficiency is not the goal when we're talking about a government project at all. And if you're talking about a private entity, Efficiency is crucial. They want to produce things of the highest quality and with the lowest amount of input as possible because they have to eat any cost overruns themselves. And so SpaceX had this idea that they were going to make reusable rockets. And they started with the Falcon series of rockets. um, And now they are moving on to Starship. And this is a program that has the potential, uh, and, and Elon says this all the time, the potential to make human life interplanetary. His goal, ultimately, is to enable us to get to Mars and set up a colony on Mars. 
Um, and the way that that is feasible, or the way that it will be feasible, is if you have an entirely reusable rocket. Well, so they've been working on this for a couple of decades at this point. Last week, they had the second integrated flight test of one of these Starship rockets. It is significantly more powerful. I, I believe it's at least twice as powerful as the Saturn V that put humanity on the moon 60 years ago. And um, it is awesome to see this thing take flight. Now, the flight did not go as they would have wanted it to do. Um, both the booster that they used and the Starship on top of it ended up having to be detonated, but that is actually expected. That's that's precisely what SpaceX was predicting would ultimately happen. They didn't predict that these the mission would succeed completely at this point. Um, what they are doing is what NASA never does, and it's called rapid iteration. They make lots and lots of these rockets, and they test, and they test, and they test, and they test under real-world circumstances, under launch circumstances, and they learn from their failures. Um, one of the books that, that I've read to my kids uh, is about a little girl who's interested in engineering. And she builds a device, and it doesn't work quite the way she expected it to. And her aunt comes along and says, oh, no, 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 that's what we call a successful failure. It's, it's okay to have one of your early projects fail because you learn something from how it failed and then you can design an improved version. So NASA never does this. Like NASA settles on a design and they stick to that design come hell or high water um, and they don't innovate and they don't improve and they don't economize. And that's where SpaceX is really set apart is they are learning from these kinds of failures so that they will produce ultimately the most efficient way of accomplishing these missions um, and that is going to dramatically reduce the cost of putting satellites in space it's going to dramatically reduce the cost of people traveling in space and i think that that has uh, an absolutely revolutionary potential and i wish that it was being celebrated more. Because again, this is the value of capitalism. This is the value of the private market, being able to move forward and innovate in these ways so that these life-altering, these civilization-altering technologies are going to be available to people at an affordable cost. Um, think also of the cell phone market. Um, you know, it is... I was talking with, with Martha earlier about how um, one of the crazy things about cell phones is you're holding the computing power, more computing, far more computing power uh, than was used to put humans on the moon in the palm of your hand. Um, the device that you're holding in your hand gives you access to basically the entire world of human knowledge. Um, which is remarkable for somebody like me who grew up in the 80s and the 90s. We could never have dreamed of having that kind of, of access to human information uh, when I was growing up. And yet now, you know, every kid is carrying around one of these devices, and it's truly remarkable. It has a transformative capacity. Um, and again, that's the beauty of capitalism. That's what capitalism is able to accomplish that socialized forms of government, communist forms of government could never dream of. 
Um, all of which is to say, that is something that I am very grateful for. Um, I am grateful that we live in a country, in a society uh, that does benefit or that, that does incentivize this kind of private innovation. Um, because that is what has allowed the world to slowly become a better and better place. That's what has allowed billions of people to escape poverty in just the last few decades. Um, that is what allowed us to develop agriculture in such a way. I don't know if people remember, but back in the 70s, you had people going out there. There was a book called The Population Bomb, and they were predicting that by the 2000s, the early 2000s, the human population would have grown so much that we could not possibly feed everybody. And they were predicting famine and war and pestilence and all these things. And instead, we got to the year 2000 and we had developed technological solutions for the problems that they had foreseen. We had developed new types of crop, uh, crops, new farming uh, techniques that allows the world to support the world's population and not just support it, but we have surpluses of, of food and materials that would not have been dreamed of a few decades ago. That is the result of capitalism. That's the result of private innovation. It wasn't the government that did these things. It was private people working together to try and solve humanity's problems. That's one of the things that sets the United States apart. That's one of the things that makes us the most innovative and the most successful human society that has ever existed. And if we lose that capitalistic um, approach to the world, if we lose that emphasis on private solutions to the world's challenges, we will lose the advantage that we have had, the historical advantage um, that the United States has had on uh, improving the lives of its citizens and then by proxy the lives of people the world over. If you have thoughts on this, feel free to call in. The number is 1-800-529-5572 or 573-874-9390. I would be happy to chat about these ideas or any other ideas that you have bouncing around your head on this Thanksgiving Eve. But in the meantime, we're heading into another commercial break. This is Dave Roland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Zimmer Radio Network. We are back. This is Dave Roland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Gary Nolan Show. Uh, we have had a fantastic show today. We've talked to a lot of interesting people, but uh, I am going to revert to my own personal interests on this, and I hope you'll, you'll find it interesting too. Uh, I love to talk about constitutional issues, legal issues. I am an attorney by training, although I like to refer to myself as a professional idealist. Um, and there has been a lot of interesting developments in the law in the last couple of weeks that I think you guys might find interesting as well. In particular, I want to talk about uh, some of the legal issues that former President Trump is facing. Um, if you listen to the show regularly, you know I come on on Thursdays during the 11 o'clock hour and Gary and I talk about current events from a constitutional perspective. And uh, we've, we've talked a fair bit about uh, the former president's legal troubles. And just in case you're not aware, I generally agree with uh, many people's assessment that some of these charges that have been raised against President Trump um, are more politically motivated than they are rooted in uh, actual intent to uh, enforce the laws the way that anybody 
would would have the laws enforced against them. However, um, there are certain issues that I think um, perhaps the prosecutions are warranted, uh, and they may well result in some convictions. In particular, uh, I, I am really concerned about the Florida document retention case. Uh, just in case you're, you're not familiar with this situation, um, when the president leaves office, uh, there are certain records that, according to federal law, are supposed to belong to the federal government, meaning that um, when the president leaves office, they don't get to keep those records. They are supposed to remain uh, in the control of the federal government. Now, this is one of those laws that gets bent with some frequency. One of the things that we found out after uh, the efforts to recover some of these records from President Trump began is that, in fact, uh, there were records being improperly stored by a number of former federal officials, including vice presidents, including uh, Joe Biden. Uh, he had improperly stored federal records uh, as well. The difference between those situations and President Trump's situation is the allegation. And I do want to emphasize that it is an allegation. An allegation is claims uh, that, that are supposed to be true or that are, are arguably true that have not been proven. And so in any time that you have someone going into court bringing allegations, it's important to remember that the reason that we have a judicial process is to determine whether or not the allegations are in fact true. Uh, and in a criminal prosecution, the government bears a very heavy burden of proving beyond a reasonable doubt that the allegations are true. It is possible they will not be able to meet that burden. That said, the allegation against President Trump in this situation is that he was made aware that he was holding records that he did not have any right to control anymore because he was no longer the president. And although there was a court order requiring him to return those records, he did not return all of the records, although he said that he did. And the, the most concerning allegation to me is the allegation that he actually tried to cover up the fact that he was withholding some of the records that he said he had returned to the federal government, uh, including allegations that he tried to erase recordings that showed them moving the records so that they would not be found, so that they would be um, preserved for President Trump's use, even though he was not legally entitled to do that. I think that is the most dangerous allegation that he is facing. Um, I think that it is the kind of thing that needs to be enforced, uh, especially the fact that there was a court order for him to produce these records. And he, if the allegations are proved to be correct, then he openly defied the court order. And we just can't have that. Like, our, our society cannot function properly if... People believe they are above the law. And that's what this that's what the allegations amount to. Um, so I am I am very concerned about that particular charge. Um, but there are other issues that former President Trump is facing that 
um, that I think bear comment. One of the claims that is is being pursued right now in a number of states is the idea that President Trump should not be eligible to serve as president again because of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is called the Insurrection Clause. And if people will remember, this was adopted right at the tail end of the Civil War. And the idea behind it is they wanted to prevent people who had actively sided with the Confederacy um, from being able to be elected as members of Congress. That was the primary concern there. Um, But the language of the 14th Amendment goes a little bit further, and it says that you also should not be able to serve as an officer of the United States. And so in states across the country, I think it's about a half dozen states at this point, um, there have been legal challenges filed trying to keep former President Trump off the ballot, trying to prevent voters from choosing him as president in 2024. Uh, I talked with Gary about this a couple weeks ago, and I have come to the conclusion that I think that this insurrection clause should not apply to President Trump. It certainly should not keep him off the ballot. Uh, because what the insurrection clause does is it says that it prevents someone from holding office. And there is a distinction between running for office and holding office. So it's one thing for someone to run for office, be elected, and then be deemed unqualified as a result of the insurrection clause. It is a different thing to say, we think you should not even be an option for the voters. And that's what these current challenges are trying to do. To that extent, I think that the challenges are premature, even if we assume that the insurrection clause does apply to the office of president. But that raises another question. The president swears a different oath than congressmen swear. And the wording that the insurrection clause uses focuses on the language that congressmen swear in their oath. It did not emphasize the language that the president swears in his oath. Furthermore, under the U.S. Constitution, the president is responsible for appointing officers of the United States. And that raises the question of whether the president himself is considered to be an officer of the United States. I'm a textualist. That means that I look at the plain language of the Constitution. I try and understand the words that are used in the sense that they were used at the time the provision was adopted. And I am not persuaded that the president would qualify as an officer of the United States. The president appoints officers. I am not, I am certainly not clearly persuaded that the president himself would be considered an officer of the United States. Therefore, I think that the insurrection clause should not apply to prevent President Trump from running for office again, even though I think it would be unwise of the people of the country to elect him. They deserve to have that choice. If you have thoughts about this or anything else we've said on the show, the number is 800-529-5572 or 573-874-9390. This is Dave Roland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Zimmer Radio Network. This is the Gary Nolan Show. Welcome back. This is Dave Rowland, Director of Litigation for the Freedom Center of Missouri, filling in for Gary Nolan today. Uh, So 
I wanted to talk about uh, a very important case that the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals just decided here in the last week. Um, listeners, you may be familiar with the fact that we have a Voting Rights Act that was passed by Congress decades ago, and the idea was to prevent states from rigging their own political systems um, in, in certain different ways. And there was an issue that came up in front of the Eighth Circuit just in the last uh, couple of months where a group of citizens filed a lawsuit and they were arguing that Arkansas uh, had improperly uh, made its district boundaries, its legislative district boundaries. And the state responded, well, you know what? Citizens don't have any right to file a lawsuit under the Voting Rights Act. Now, to be clear, citizens have always been filing lawsuits under the Voting Rights Act. Like, this is a very common type of lawsuit to be filed by a citizen. But just because that's been the common practice does not mean it was correct on the law. And so that's the issue that came in front of this three-judge panel on the Eighth Circuit. And the decision that they handed down this week was a split decision. Two judges went one way, one judge went the other way. But the majority said, in fact, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act does not give citizens a cause of action. It does not give them the right to file a lawsuit arguing that a state has violated the Voting Rights Act. So this is actually a really, really big deal. Um, because, as I mentioned, for the last several decades, uh, the most common way for a Voting Rights Act lawsuit to begin has been a group of citizens filing one of these kinds of suits. If the Eighth Circuit is correct, all of a sudden, those kinds of lawsuits would be thrown out of court at the beginning. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how the court arrived at this conclusion. As I mention frequently when I'm on this show, I am a textualist. And that means I focus not on what we might be able to infer about what Congress was trying to accomplish when it passed any given law. I focus on what does the text actually say. Um, and it, if you'll indulge me with an anecdote, when I was in law school, um, I had a professor who was shocked at this. Uh, we had a visiting professor, Professor Eskridge from Yale, who had written a textbook on statutory interpretation. And he polled my law school class, did we think that the proper role for judges was to try and figure out what Congress was trying to accomplish, or did we think that the role of judges was simply to interpret the text that Congress actually passed. And the vast majority of my classmates, including myself, said the judge needs to focus on the text because you can't count on the ability of getting in the minds of the hundreds of different Congress people who passed any given law and discerning what each one of them or a critical mass of them thought about the law they were passing. But you can look at the text and you can figure out what the text says. Um, that's part of the reason why I'm a textualist. Judge Strauss of the Eighth Circuit, who wrote the majority opinion, is also a textualist. And he looks at this and he acknowledges 
that for decades, the uh, major, the primary way of enforcing the Voting Rights Act has been lawsuits brought by citizens or groups of citizens. But he says, look, just because that has been done historically doesn't mean that that's correct. When you look at Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, it only gives the authority, only expressly gives authority to bring a challenge to the attorney general. And he says the job of the court in this particular case is to figure out if identifying the attorney general as one source of authority for bringing this kind of a lawsuit means that that authority cannot belong to anybody else. So one of the phrases that um, lawyers sometimes like to toss around and, and show off uh, with is, uh, is the idea that expressing one thing means the exclusion of other things. The, the Latin term is expressio unius est exclusio alterius. That means by expressing one thing, you are therefore excluding all other things. And that's basically where Judge Strauss came down. He says the fact that this statute expressly says the attorney general has the authority to sue to enforce the Voting Rights Act and then did not acknowledge anybody else having this authority, it means that Congress only intended for the attorney general to have this authority. Now, part of the problem is, is that the U.S. Supreme Court has, over the years, heard a lot of these cases that were brought by citizens or groups of citizens. And it seems to me quite likely that if this case gets in front of the Supreme Court, which it very well may, we may see a majority of the Supreme Court say, you know what, we're cool with just letting citizens bring these lawsuits regardless of what the text says. Um, we may well see that because I think that the fact that you've got this split decision, number one, it makes it possible and maybe even likely that the entire Eighth Circuit is going to rehear this case. Uh, it's what we call an en banc review. In any given appeal, you usually have a three-judge panel, but the Eighth Circuit is actually made up of 12 judges. And so uh, when you have an en banc review, it means all 12 of the judges uh, hear the case again and all 12 will vote on how it should come out. And that result can be quite different from what you get from a three-judge panel. Uh, I think that, that we will likely see uh, a petition for en banc review here, and it may be that the Eighth Circuit as a whole decides to reverse the holding uh, of, of Judge Strauss and his, uh, his concurrence here. But we don't know. And, and if the Eighth Circuit does not reverse itself here, then I think that this is very much the kind of case that could go up to the U.S. Supreme Court. So I think that that is very much an issue worth watching uh, for those of you who are interested in um, these kinds of, of legal and, and uh, constitutional questions. So I also wanted to talk about uh, another important constitutional issue that has arisen here in Missouri, um, and it involves the Missouri Constitution. So one of the things that I frequently like to point out is that 
although we have a federal bill of rights that sets out certain fundamental freedoms that the government is not supposed to be allowed to interfere with, um, the Missouri Constitution has a similar bill of rights. And in some, actually in several circumstances, the Missouri Constitution's protections for freedom are more explicit and more extensive than those you find in the text of the Federal Bill of Rights. And that has an impact on a particular case coming out of St. Louis. Uh, there is a murder trial going on where the defendant is accused of uh, killing a police officer. And the defendant had a psychological evaluation done and accidentally the court in St. Louis City published this psychological evaluation on the court's website. And one of the reporters for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch obtained the copy from the court's website. She obtained it perfectly legally, and she intended to write a news story about this because I think most listeners will agree, um, you know, the things that a defendant, a criminal defendant said about this accusation that they killed a police officer is certainly the kind of thing that would interest the general public. They'd want to know, what did this guy say about whether or not he killed this police officer and potentially why he killed the police officer? Uh, so Katie Cole, this reporter, had prepared a story and contacted the defendant's attorney to ask for comment. And rather than responding to her request for comment, the attorney went down to the courthouse and said, you've got to shut this reporter up. Do not let her publish this story. Well, that's what we in the constitutional world call a prior restraint. It is a court acting or a government entity generally acting to prevent someone from sharing an idea or a story or a bit of information. Uh, it is a proactive uh, position that the government is taking. And the court granted the prior restraint. The court entered an order that prohibits Katie Cole or the Post-Dispatch from sharing the information that they learned about from the psychological evaluation uh, that accidentally got shared by the courts. So now the question is, can they actually do that? Does the First Amendment allow a court to tell a journalist, you're not allowed to share this information? And even if the First Amendment allows that, what about the Missouri Constitution? Because the Missouri Constitution has its own protections for free speech. And it's possible that those protections are more expansive and more extensive than the First Amendment. We're going to continue this story on the other side of this commercial break. Uh, if you've got questions about it, feel free to call in. The number is 800-529-5572 or 573-874-9390. This is Dave Rowland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Zimmer Radio Network. Welcome back. This is Dave Rowland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Gary Nolan Show. We closed out the last segment talking a little bit about this prior restraint case over in the city of St. Louis. And... Um, I find this particularly interesting because of the Missouri Constitution and what it has to say about the idea of prior restraints. Now, I want to be clear, uh, just like I believe the U.S. Supreme Court has been clear, I think the First Amendment 
prohibits uh, this kind of prior restraint. Uh, there was a very similar case uh, way back in the 70s called Nebraska Press Association. And the idea in that case was, again, um, there were some journalists that got information about uh, a very controversial murder trial, and they wanted to run a story, and the local court uh, issued a prior restraint, said you are not allowed to publish a story about this. It went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, 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 no. Under the First Amendment, the only way that you get to prevent uh, a newspaper from publishing on this kind of a topic is if you can prove that the story they will run will end up denying the defendant a fair trial. And so that is kind of the argument here, except that, to the best of my knowledge, uh, the defendant's attorney never offered any kind of proof that if the Post-Dispatch publishes a story uh, that, that it is contemplated here, that it will prevent the defendant from getting a fair trial. Um, I want to also highlight that back in the 70s, major media outlets like newspapers were far more influential than they are today. So back when I was growing up, almost everybody got a newspaper. Like it, I, I delivered newspaper with my sister for a while when I was younger. And, and so we had almost every house um, providing newspapers each morning or afternoon. And um, so you could pretty well guarantee that if the newspaper ran a story on its front page, most everybody would have seen the story. That is no longer the case. Newspapers have been hemorrhaging subscribers. And so I think that uh, the likelihood that a story run by a newspaper is going to be even seen by a significant percentage of the population, uh, much less that the population would be persuaded by what's said, in the article, that the likelihood is much lower today than it would have been in the 1970s. And the U.S. Supreme Court said in the 1970s that it wasn't sufficient to uh, enjoin the newspaper from sharing. But let's look at the Missouri Constitution. The Missouri Constitution is very different from the First Amendment. Here's what it currently says. It says that no law shall be passed impairing the freedom of speech no matter by what means communicated, that every person shall be free to say, write, or publish, or otherwise communicate whatever he will on any subject, being responsible for all abuses of that liberty. So, as the, U uh, as the Missouri Supreme Court has previously acknowledged, you can't come up with language that is more comprehensive than that. Uh, in a case from 1902, the Missouri Supreme Court looked at that language and they said language could not be broader, nor prohibition, nor protection, more amply comprehensive. In other words, when Missourians were considering their right to free speech, they wanted to nail it down with precision. And they did a really good job of adopting the language that they did. One of the other things that the Missouri Supreme Court said in that 1902 case is that the provisions of the Missouri Constitution emphasize that penalty or punishment is the way to approach uh, controversial speech, not prevention. In other words, 
if a plaintiff can prove that they were harmed in some way by something that somebody said, then they have the option uh, option of going into court and demonstrating, you know, well, because this person said this false thing, therefore they should have to pay me damages. But number one, as long as what was being shared is true, and number two, unless it can be proven to have caused a concrete harm or damage to the plaintiff, then there should not be consequences that flow from that at all. And especially the Missouri Supreme Court has said the courts have no authority to step in and prevent someone from saying, writing, or publishing whatever they want on any subject, no matter by what means communicated. So right now, this issue is in front of the Missouri Court of Appeals. The Post-Dispatch has asked them to review this case and to tell the trial court that they have done a bad thing by issuing this prior restraint. And on behalf of a group called Mo Free Speech, uh, I am anticipating filing a brief with the Court of Appeals, making the, the very point that I just described, pointing out that even if the court decides that the First Amendment doesn't protect the Post-Dispatch's right to publish this truthful story about what its uh, journalists learned, the Missouri Constitution expressly says that no government uh, entity, including the courts, has the authority to prevent someone from sharing ideas or information. If it later proves that when they said this thing, it caused harm to somebody else, then there are circumstances where you can go to court and you can recover for any damages that were caused by false speech, but you absolutely cannot issue a prior restraint the way the trial court has done in this situation. So keep your eyes on the news. I think that there's going to be some uh, some more developments in this story in the coming months. Um, when we publish or when we issue this, this uh, set of suggestions to the court, I'll probably post it on the Freedom Center of Missouri's website. That's mofreedom.org. Feel free to go there, check out the kinds of cases that we litigate. And if you'd like, feel free to donate at mofreedom.org slash donate. In the meantime, this has been Dave Rowland, the Director of Litigation for the Freedom Center, filling in for Gary Nolan. You guys, stay strong, stay kind, and most importantly, stay free.